This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Pure O. Where did this term come from? And why do we feel so confused by it? What does the research tell us? And why has the DSM added to the confusion? Today, we are going to be exploring these questions when it comes to the subtype we haven't mentioned yet, pure obsessional OCD. In this skills episode, you'll hear us exploring and thinking out loud about pure O. We talk about where the idea of pure O came from, what it looks like in session, and how, if misunderstood, the use of the term can create confusion for clinicians and clients alike. Let's get started. Hello, Tori. Hey, Celine. Welcome back to our listeners for another episode, a skills episode. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yes. As you would have heard in the intro, we are talking about the subtype we haven't mentioned yet. Pure O. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pure our O. Our favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Celine is being very sarcastic. I am. It's a tricky one. That's why. It's not that we don't like it. It's just that it's a tricky one, which is why it's great that we have a whole episode to be able to talk about it. Because this is something, isn't it, Celine, that a subtype that we have talked about often and we've talked about with our colleagues and that we often talk about with the clients that we work with because it is a really interesting one. And I know that out in the community, there's sort of different views and beliefs about it, which I think is worth unpacking and thinking about. For sure. So in preparation for this podcast, Tori asked a question, where did this even come from? Because if you open up the DSM, there are no subtypes listed in the DSM because it's an all-encompassing criteria. And so we thought, that's really interesting. So she did some digging and found where this originated from. And it's a really, really interesting story that we want to share with you guys to give some background and to give some context because it really helps understand the meaning where it comes from and helps it become less confusing. I agree. It is a lovely story. And it was a real penny drop moment for me because I think that the reason that we had been feeling so confused is that when you go to the DSM, as you said, it's an all-encompassing, there's fairly specific criteria, which is that to be diagnosed with OCD, you have to have the presence of both the intrusive images, urges, thoughts, feelings, you know, so the obsessions, and they have to be married with a compulsion. So that is by definition what OCD is. So then to have this term pure O, pure obsessional OCD or pure obsessions is I think a tricky term because how can someone have only obsessions if they don't have compulsions, they don't meet criteria for OCD, they don't have it. So what are we doing using a term like pure O, telling clients that they've got this special subtype where they've only got the intrusions and there's someone who just has a special type that doesn't have compulsions. And it's not actually what pure O is all about, but the term would suggest that that was true. Yeah, because even when you open up the DSM and you read the definition of what an obsession is, it talks about 
mental compulsions. And you're like, what the actual fuck? Because you're telling me about a compulsion in the obsession section. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to be really black and white about it, it does get confusing in that way when you're reading it. And I think we need to bring in a little bit of flexibility (laughs) in understanding what pure O actually is. That's right. So the story, the lovely story, which was the real penny drop moment for me, was when I started looking at Dr. Stephen Phillipson's work. So he is the clinical psychologist. He's a PhD researcher. He's based in New York and he has been working with OCD for a long time. So he's got a lot of expertise. And he was the one who coined the term pure O and it was back in the very early 90s, pretty sure it was 1991. And He, at the time, the way that he tells the story is that he was working in the US, in New York, with a lot of clients with OCD. And more and more and more, he was working with clients who were telling him the story about their experience of OCD, which was that they had predominantly mental rituals. And this was, at the time, mental rituals weren't acknowledged. They weren't recognized. They weren't conceptualized as being part of OCD. At that point in time, compulsions were very much defined by as being observable compulsions. So the classic ones that you kind of, you know, the hand washing and the sorting and organizing, you know, the checking, the tapping, you know, those sorts of things. So it was still back then, he says, a fairly rudimentary understanding of OCD relative to what we understand now. And so he did some work around wanting to help clients who had mental rituals be seen, be identified and help practitioners to work with because this community they weren't being diagnosed or they were being misdiagnosed. They were being vilified because of course the obsessions that they were having like anyone with OCD were considered taboo thoughts, pedophilic, sexual, harm thoughts. And so without a really good recognition of what those experiences were, people were feeling pretty terrible about themselves. What's wrong with me? Why do I have these thoughts? And so he became a great advocate for the OCD community and he coined the term pure O It was a name that he made up really just to capture clients who had obsessions and mental rituals. That was it. That's what we're talking about. And so he, at no stage, meant that to mean that they didn't have compulsions. It was just the term that he made up to conceptualize mental rituals. And he didn't mean it that it was exclusively mental rituals either. He acknowledges that there were plenty of clients who had mental rituals, but also had other observable compulsions as well. It was just a name that he made up. In a recent interview that he didn't know it was going to happen was that it became incredibly popular and the term just took off. He wrote a paper on it. It took off. And suddenly there were all of these people all around America and all around the world saying, that's me, that's me, that's me. Yes. And finally felt seen, felt heard, felt validated, were being diagnosed, were being treated for their OCD. Which is so important because there's clearly so many people that experience mental compulsions that would have, like you described earlier, would have missed out on adequate treatment, would have felt broken, would have felt like there was something wrong with them might have even felt like their intrusive thoughts mean that they are a pedophile or a murderer or some other whatever else it might be or a bad person in some way. And without a better explanation for it, of course you'd land there. Of course you would. Yeah, without the language to describe what is going on. Absolutely. It's become a very, very popular term. And this is where I think it gets really important for us to understand the history of Puro because 
There are really strong community groups who advocate for the retention of this term, even though there are a lot of people who are saying, I don't know that we should be using it because it's not scientifically accurate. But it is a meaningful term because it represents those members of the community who were once not recognized. But I also think it's become the term that people use to articulate that their particular subtype of OCD is predominantly mental rituals. And we know, we've talked about this briefly before, about how important it is to have language. This is the power of the subtype. It doesn't change treatment. There's no one subtype that is more serious or more special than another, but it is powerful to have language to connect with others. It's sort of that sense of universality or normalizing your difficulties to be able to say, oh, that's me, to be able to recognize your symptoms in something you're reading or something you're listening and to be able to say to a practitioner, this is sort of how I conceptualize the symptoms that I have. It's really important to not underestimate how powerful that language is. And so there are a lot of community groups who really, really want us to keep the term because of its power. But I was listening to an interview recently with Dr. Philipson, and he believes that we should retain it too. But he acknowledges that it's not very scientific. He says, look, I'm a scientist. I do a lot of research. And I acknowledge that if we were doing OCD research, we couldn't really use this term scientifically because it's not scientifically accurate. It's a nickname. And let's just know what it is. Know that it is a nickname for people who have mental rituals. So use it, but use it knowingly. Don't get caught up in a debate on semantics. Use it just knowing that it's a nickname and proceed thoughtfully. Absolutely. I think it's what it sounds like is we as clinicians have to sit with our own discomfort. When things (laughs) don't fit in a neat category, especially... When we're first starting out, it's like, ah, what's going on here? What am I supposed to do? What does this mean? It's about being a little bit creative and flexible and going that this is just a term we're using to help people feel heard, to make them feel validated, but at the same time, know that it has its limitations and no, it's not accurate. I think that's a really important thing, as you mentioned. That means that we have to, yes, with our own discomfort, knowing that it's not fitting into a neat box. Yeah. And I know it's tricky because I don't know about you, Celine, but I've had a few conversations with clients who have said, look, I've got pure O, so I can't really do ERP because I don't have compulsions. Like there's nothing for me to work on. The issue is the fact that I have these thoughts. And so they've taken the term pure O quite literally, but that's okay because I see that as my role to help provide some psychoeducation and help them think Mm -hmm. about it and then use tools like psychometrics to help actually look, is that true? Let's have a look. And I think most of the time we discover that actually there are, whether it be that there are a lot of mental rituals, but often mental rituals and observable compulsions. I know that in the community, there are a lot of people who still misunderstand the term, but I think that, you know, I think we can navigate that. I don't think we have to rid ourselves of the term. Yeah. Because how many times do people think that bipolar is what we used to call split personality? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Like it is up to us to educate and to provide that information, to provide the clarity. That's our role. That's why we do what we do. And it is part of the psychoeducation process, which is a part of your treatment. When you're working with someone with OCD who comes in and thinks they're broken, they're untreatable, they have a special type. But often what we'll find is even though someone is presenting with mental compulsions, they will really kind of fit into more of a taboo subtype of OCD. So they might have pedophilic thoughts, 
and engage in lots of mental compulsions to neutralize those thoughts. Or they might have scrupulosity as a subtype and they might engage in different mental compulsions to, again, neutralize, to reduce the discomfort and so on and so forth. That's so interesting, Celine. Actually, we haven't defined mental rituals yet. I've just realized. Let's do that. Celine, what is a mental ritual? A mental ritual is something someone does in response to a trigger. And that trigger can be an image, a thought, a sensation, an emotion, a situation. It could be anything really. So normally we'd see observable compulsions happening, but the compulsion is actually done inside the mind and it can look like so many different things. And I think the best way to explain it is to provide different examples of what it actually looks like. So let's just say for argument's sake, someone is walking past a child's playground and they see a child and they think, oh, how cute is that kid? And then OCD goes, are you sure you didn't molest that child? Or an image might pop in of that person molesting that child. It might even be something like just stroking their face or looking at them wanting to kiss their lips or something like that, right? Which will feel really, really uncomfortable. And so the person might keep walking past, notice anxiety and start thinking things like, how far away were my hands when I was walking past that child? Are they still in my pockets? Do I still know where they are? Can I hear the parent yelling out after me? Can I hear a child crying? They might scan over what just happened and make sure that they didn't do what they thought they did. So they might replay the scenario in their mind and they might keep doing that while they're walking. They might keep walking and repeat a phrase that neutralizes the discomfort to themselves. And that phrase can be anything from, I'm safe, I didn't do anything, I can't hear anything, to singing a song or counting to a certain number of times, or maybe saying a prayer or saying some other neutralizing statement. They might keep walking and try and block the thought out of their mind. They might internally shake their head to clear the thought from their mind. Loads of different things. Can you think of anything else? Well, it could be anything, couldn't it be? It could be conjuring a positive image to to neutralize it, or you've mentioned praying, counting, saying positive statements to yourself. I didn't, I didn't, I would never, I would never. It's anything that you do inside your mind. Yeah, basically. Anything you do inside your mind to make yourself feel better after you've been triggered is a mental compulsion. So how do we work with mental compulsions? That you will have to listen to another episode when we talk about treatment, but it's not untreatable. It is not. There is hope. I mean, I can't explain how many times when clients walk in with pure O and have this real sense of hopelessness and helplessness of feeling like they're not treatable, that they're different, that no one else experiences it when so many people do, including young people. Yeah. And they're quite debilitating too. I know that a lot of the young people that I work with find it so hard, you know, with their learning because they lose time doing this in their mind, which is true for observable compulsions too. But I think what's so tricky about mental compulsions and mental rituals is that from the outside observer, people often don't understand what they're looking at. And I think people can be perceived as distracted, disengaged, staring off into space, looking like they're away with the fairies. You're like they're daydreaming. 
parents are like, are you listening to me? Yeah. So sometimes, you know, people can look disinterested or sort of belligerent, like they're deliberately ignoring someone. And really they're just sort of trapped in their mind, just trying to make themselves feel better. And it's tricky. And then it's tricky for the person with the mental ritual to articulate what it is. And I've certainly had a lot of clients talk about how it's weird. It's weird what I do. It's weird what I do. It's just, I can't explain it. It's just a thing that I have to see, or it's a pattern that I have to conjure, a certain pattern of words that I have to sort of string together. And it's a tricky experience. It really is. And you're so right in terms of you sharing that just reminded me of a story where I once met someone who would, while they were reading, this is how debilitating it can be, while they were reading, would calculate the letters of the alphabet in each word and then make a sum of it while before reading the next word. And how they read anything and understood, my mind was blown. I was like, wow. So for example, the letter A is one, the letter B is two. So you go all the way to 26 letters of the English alphabet. And so if the word was cat, they would sum three plus one plus whatever T ends up being, and then have to sum that before reading the next word. Does that make sense? You're kidding. No, I was like, whoa, this is really, really intense in terms of the elaborate ritual that was associated with reading. How exhausting. Yeah, because typically with reading, we see a lot of rereading and a lot of slow reading for comprehension, but there was this really intense kind of ritual associated with it and it was extremely exhausting. And I can't imagine that needing to engage in that ritual while you were reading, there goes comprehension. How could you possibly absorb the meaning of what you were reading if you were actually just doing math sums in your mind? But their working memory capacity? (laughs) I bet. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) I bet. I bet. I want to ask you what kind of exercises you guys did to address that, but I'm not going to because we've got the ERP episode coming up next. I don't want to leave ahead too far, but I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, like anything, it's painful at the start, but it won't be surprising to you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the application, right? This is it. This is what we'll share with you guys as well in terms of the application of treatment principles. Will we tailored based on what compulsions and what themes your client is presenting with? But it's really exploring how you can do that. And that's what we'll do in that episode. Yeah. Well, that is Pure O, really just a nickname for clients who have mental rituals as their compulsion when they get triggered. How easy is that? Yeah, that's right. It's just another subtype. Yeah. I had a colleague ask me about the other day. She's like, can you tell me about Pure O? And I was like, well. Yes, I can. She goes, that's it? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) that's it. That's it. Okay. That's right. I know when you know, it just makes perfect sense. And I'm actually glad I've had this opportunity to really think about it and to explore the origin story because I was confused. There's no doubt about it. Oh, same. I'm so glad. It was so helpful. Yeah. Well, we hope you found this helpful too. And we look forward to coming together again for more interviews and more skills episodes. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. 
To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word. That's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules. <laughs>